When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you are listening to New Books in American South, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am with Regina L. Wagner, Assistant Professor of Political Science at University of Alabama, to talk about her new book, Electoral Patterns in Alabama, Local Change and Continuity Amid National Trends, published by Palgrave Macmillan 2022 in the Palgrave Studies in U.S. Election Series. While significant attention in political science is devoted to national-level elections, An in-depth look at state-level political dynamics in the United States is so far sorely missing, and state-level electoral developments and shifts are often treated as mere reflections of national-level dynamics and patterns, which significantly impacts our ability to understand macro-level electoral shifts in the United States in general. This book analyzes gubernatorial, congressional, and presidential election results in the state of Alabama from 1945 through 2020. Comprehensive maps of county-level partisan shifts make it possible to isolate pivotal elections and compare state-level and national trends over time, and extensive electoral data on county-level allows placing state-level electoral behavior in its regional and national context. Detailed county-level demographic and economic data is used to provide local context for electoral patterns, shifts, and continuities. Well, Regina, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, before we get into the content of the book, tell me a little bit about your academic background and the impetus for writing Electoral Patterns in Alabama. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm at I'm currently at the University of Alabama. Um, I got my PhD at the University of Wisconsin in 2018 um, in political science. And that was actually I, my dissertation was looking at um, women's political representation in the U.S. Um, and then I started working at UA, um, where I still am as an assistant professor in 2018. Um, and really part of the, so this book came out of a larger project that I had, um, started working on that looked at, um, gubernatorial elections across the country and sort of shifts that were happening on the county level. Um, and I still hope to work on that. Um, but that is a lot of data. So my idea was starting in 1912, Um, going up to about 2020 and just look at all gubernatorial elections to see if there are sort of regional patterns that we can discern. Um, And I sort of, you know, because I am in the state and I was interested in what is going on here. And, you know, there also with some of the the recent elections, there's been some more national interest in Alabama. I decided, you know, I could pull that out of the project and sort of focus on that state first um, and see where that goes and then sort of return to the, to the bigger project. So that's kind of where this came from. Sure. So in your research in this book, and also as you indicate in your research on gubernatorial elections, you have an interest in county level results and county level shifts. What's the, what's the benefit of utilizing counties and analyzing in this case, Alabama's shifting political and partisan affiliation? Mm -hmm. Well, so I wanted to sort of go 
at as a sort of granular level as was possible. And now ideally you would want precinct level data, um, but that is just not available for sort of, you know, elections going back more than a couple of years. So if you want to get back, go back and ideally I still want to go back, you know, past 1945 into, um, you know, earlier decades. So really um, the, the data availability, the smallest sort of unit you can find for those earlier um, decades is just the county. Um, and sort of my idea was if we can, you know, we, a lot of times we just look at the state as a unit, but there really is a lot going on inside of these states, you know, and, and we can see that in, in this book too, I think that the regions are just doing very different things, right? And so in a perfect world, I would tell you, I would be able to tell you what the precincts are doing, but, you know, that is just not available, um, unfortunately, for that time frame. So um, I think the county is kind of, you know, the best we can get to to see sort of shifts below, you know, the state level. And so, you know, and, and, and we can get into this, um, you know, when we start talking about the book, but sort of there is, you know, the, it looks like the state is doing something like the entire state is doing the same thing. Right. But once you start looking at not just the county level, but the shifts, you start seeing that only parts of it are doing that. Right. And, and some other parts are actually doing something else, which I think is, you know, both fascinating and, you know, something that we can maybe use today to think about elections, but also that gets lost if we just look at, oh, you know, at the state level, this is what the South was doing, or this is what, you know, um, what this or that state was doing. So. Yeah, you've mentioned parts and regions in your in your previous answer. And a focus of your argument is that even amidst a one-party Democratic state, that there was serious political division in Alabama. Can you elaborate on this, you know, century-long factionalism, uh, which you classify as regional economic over racial? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that actually, you know, the extent of that really kind of surprised me when I started looking at the maps, right? Because again, if you just compare one election to the next, you know, you see this sort of deeply blue or deeply democratic state, you know, going on for for decades. But if you start looking at the shifts, um, you see that that's not not the case, right? And so then. Um, the, you know, what I started finding is sort of that the northern part of the state, um, and again, like you said, this was an economic division, right? The, so there was a lot of agreement on racial issues. There really wasn't any, you know, any division of the electorate was all white, right? They had successfully disenfranchised black voters. So really, you didn't, not that race wasn't important, it obviously was really important, but it wasn't a, a dividing issue, right? So it didn't sort of structure the, the political conflicts within the state, because everyone who was able to vote agreed, right? And, and people who didn't agree, you know, were excluded from voting. So you had these divisions that were, um, you know, centered around economics, and they really go back a long time. And I kind of talk about this a little bit in the book where, you know, even they go back to how the state was settled, right? And where these settlers came from. Um, and also they go back to sort of the just the the geographic differences in the state, you really can't have, you know, large plantations in northern Alabama, right? You don't have sort of the soil for it, you don't have the, um, and so you really didn't see that, right? And that was influencing the, the politics of the of the region, right? And you can see that throughout, you know, you, you mentioned that you lived in Tennessee, right? You can see that through, you know, parts of Appalachia and other areas, right? So Appalachians were you know, different from other Southerners in in political respects, and it was largely economic, right? And you can kind of see that in Alabama too. Um, So you have sort of a more populist, maybe economically progressive region in the North, 
um, and you have sort of the, you know, the big plantation owners, sort of what we think of if we, you know, when we think of, of um, the Southern, you know, economy um, going on in the Southern part of the state, right? And, and this is where, you know, um, this is actually the, the part of the state that has the highest, you know, black population, because this is where the, the slave owning plantations were, right? And so you have this really strong division. Um, and honestly, as I said, when I was starting to work on this, I was surprised by how, big of a political division that was causing, right? And and again, that was purely over sort of resources and, and you know, attempts by the, the southern part of the state to exclude these sort of poor farmers um, in the northern parts from, you know, just kind of disenfranchise them too, in a way, right? And they were kind of getting caught up in um, in some of this legislation. And, but that wasn't a new thing, right? That was, that was, and I kind of, uh, try to show that these factions were just building on each other, but they were always, you know, formed by the same by the same divisions. If that makes sense. No, it completely does. Uh, another part of your argument is that the realignment away from the Democratic Party first began with presidential elections. Then it took decades for gubernatorial and senatorial. Why was it presidential elections that was the first result in Alabama realigning? And in fact, uh, in the, the, the election you speak about where that realignment happens, they didn't necessarily go to Republicans. Right. Um, and they actually didn't want to go to Republicans at first, right? Because the Republican Party was sort of, that was the party you didn't support, right? That was the, the party that you, a Southerner couldn't be a Republican, right? That was sort of still ingrained. So at first, when they were trying to look for some some way, I think in, you know, in 1948, it was basically just a way to to register your discontent, right? They, they and, and I think I say this too in the book where, um, the idea was, well, if we show them that they can't win without us, then they will have to change course, right? And that, you know, didn't work out. And Truman did win without them. So, you know, so much for that plan, right? But the idea was we can get the Democratic Party to change. Um, so as for your question, why the presidential level? I think one big part was that Democrats started changing um, the way that you were, uh, that you the way that you um, got the nomination, right? So up until... 1936, you needed a two-thirds majority of delegates to be the Democratic nominee. And that was because they had to find someone who was acceptable to the entire, you know, kind of unwieldy coalition that they had. Um, and they changed that to a simple majority, which essentially took away the South's power to veto presidential nominees, right? So suddenly you could you could become the Democratic nominee and not be liked by the South, right? Which was not possible before. Um, and that, in a way, I think that's what started it because you could say, you know, for Alabama specifically, again, Alabama Democrats really didn't have a lot of control over who the presidential nominee was anymore. So that is where you see the rift, right? This is where you see the party moving in a direction in that case, especially on race, right? That the, that the um, Alabama Democratic Party didn't like and that their voters didn't like. Um, the senators and especially the governors were able to distance themselves from that, right? So if you think about George Wallace, he was very different from the National Democratic Party at the time that he was governor, right? So you still... Um, and that, you know, and, and that's, I think, why it took, that's one side of why it took longer for those um, offices to shift. I think the other sort of part of the the coin here is that Republicans also implemented a top-down strategy when they try to, you know, implement their Southern strategy. It was something that um, was sort of trickling down, right? So you had both of those things working together, um, sort of flipping the, the presidential level 
first. Um, and, you know, taking much, much longer to, 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 you know, I mean, in the 90s, right, when the house flipped, that was kind of still a surprise. So, you know, it took much longer. Um, but, you know, but people in the South were voting for president, for Republicans for president m- much earlier than that. So you just sort of have um, a, a greater control, I think, over your, your nominees for these other offices. Sure. How did factional control of the Democratic Party in Alabama, the progressives in the 40s and 50s, mid 60s, and then the Dixiecrat conservatives in the 60s and 70s influence regional support for the party? Because it seems that some uh, regions, depending on who controlled the party, were more supportive than others. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that also I thought was really interesting when I sort of started looking into those patterns. Right. So um, as I said earlier, your your northern part of the state really was um, fairly, you know, rebellious, if you want to call it that. They were the ones who were sort of most likely to find some way to register their you know, disapproval. Either that might be by actually voting for Republicans. Um, you had some Republicans, you know, on the local level that would win or at least voting for some sort of third party candidate. You know, so you still had Democrats winning, obviously, but on the local level, it was sort of more of a mixed bag. But then, as you said, in the 50s and 60s, the faction that they liked the best started taking control of some offices, right? So you had Jim Folson um, becoming governor. You had two, two senators who were, um, you know, aligned with this economically progressive faction. And that meant that the northern part of the state stopped. They actually became a little bit more democratic, right? So when the the state as a whole started shifting away from the party, at least, you know, to some extent, this sort of most rebellious part of the state moved in the opposite direction because they were like, hey, like, these are the people we like, right? These are the Democrats that we like the, the most. Um, and that kind of, and you can see that reverse, right? As soon as you have, um, you know, the, the Sparkman and, and, and Hill um, retire, for example, you have George Wallace in the um, in the governor's office. the The northern part of the state really doesn't have you have you basically have conservatives in both parties now in, in Alabama on economic issues, right? So you really don't. There's no reason for um, you know the hill country to to move towards Democrats now um, because that's you know. And so then you can have now that there is a racial division between the parties, right? But there isn't really, within Alabama, there isn't really an economically progressive, you know, the the senators or the candidates you have now are just conservative, um, you know, a part of the conservative uh, party. So there's really no reason to stay with this national party that's become more racially liberal, right? And so, um, you know, that if that makes sense, that's kind of how these regions shift around depending on, on, on factions. So it's really kind of fascinating to see, you know, when the state as a whole becomes more Republican, it's actually the most Republican region that becomes a little bit more democratic, right? They're go and that's because of the, you know, the progressives that have, you know, this is, these are the kinds of appeals that, that this part of the state has been receptive to. Yeah, there was a there was a great statistic you mentioned. I think you know people who follow politics now or even of the past twenty years would be surprised by this. But uh, in the late sixties, the Democratic Party in Alabama was more conservative than your average Republican Alabaman. So, uh, and that was and, and and but over time, within twenty years, and we'll get to that. That changed. So how so so by the sixties, 
the state is treading away from the Democratic Party on a national level. And it seems all, uh, you know, because there's a Dixiecrat in control of the, of the Democratic Party in Alabama, they're not moving away to the Democratic Party just yet. But the elections are nonetheless getting closer in the senatorial and gubernatorial level. But then how does the mass enfranchisement of black Alabamans affect not only Democratic electoral results, but the way in which Democratic candidates campaign in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Um, and, and that is also, I think, really fascinating. So once you have um, you know, black Alabamians be entering the electorate, right? You sort of remove these these really extensive barriers that they had to participation. They start participating um, and they start being sort of, at first, you know, they don't really like the Alabama Democratic Party because of what it is, right? But they do like the National Democratic Party. Um, and so Democrats start sort of, and, and you see this even with George Wallace in his very, very last election, right? He um, and, you know, everyone knows George Wallace, but he sort of ran, you know, extremely sort of race baiting and segregationist campaigns. Um, in his very last election, he tries to appeal to black voters because he knows, um, you know, they're a big part of the coalition now. And even I have to sort of appeal to them. Right. And so he sort of, you know, he does this visit to to a black church and he sort of is trying to um you know, even he is sort of trying to to change the way that he campaigns because these openly sort of, you know, racist appeals that he was running on before won't work anymore, right? Because a lot of the people who would have voted for him, you know, based on that have become Republicans. And a lot of the people that are Democrats now are, you know, African-American, are, are Black um, voters, right? And so, so it really changes. And even the progressive... Um, you know, if you think back to Sparkman and Hill, even the progressive senators, Sparkman was pretty much openly, you know, conservative on racial racial issues. Um, and Hill, you know, tried to stay away from them or at least do it sort of out of the spotlight. Right. So they didn't because that's you know, that wasn't a winning issue. Right. So you didn't. And, and you know, Governor Folsom back in the 50s, he actually didn't run away from the issue. And it was really sort of, you know, detrimental for him electorally. So this even this progressive uh, faction in earlier decades knew, you know, I even if I don't want to run, run on race baiting, I shouldn't run on, you know, civil rights and, and sort of racially liberal, um, you know, messages, because there's really at this point, no um, no audience that's going to vote for me based on that. But that has changed, right? So once you're in the 70s and the 80s, um, you're in a different world, right? You have um, a lot of your voters now are Black voters, right? And so you really need to, um, you know, change your 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 tune um, to still win, right? And and for, the, for a while, um, I think, you know, sort of gerrymandering and some of those things have changed that. But for a while, there was this attempt to say, well, you know, maybe we can kind of bridge the gap and have this, you know, and you you still had some white Democrats winning in, you know, in Alabama and southern states, which really you don't find as much anymore today. Right. Because, you know, the, the only places you win are majority black um, districts. And so they tend to, you know, why would they elect, you know, white representatives, right? But at this time, the idea was, well, maybe I can build this coalition of both black and white voters who are not, you know, and they can maybe, um, you know, I can, I can be a moderate that's sort of bridging the gap. Um, and that, you know, that worked for some of them for some time. Um, 
You still see that in places like uh, Alabama and North Carolina, where you have large black populations, but also a a white electorate that will still vote Democratic. Mm -hmm. Yes, you still see it in some parts, um, but it has... It's sort of a smaller, there's a smaller group than what they envisioned at the time, right? So during these breakups, there was sort of a bigger, um, you know, if, if you look at Congress, right, if you, if you look at, at the Senate, um, that used to be a, a bigger group, a bigger, a bigger block um, in Congress, right, than it is today, Um so I don't know if that answered your question, but no, 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 I, I it, it definitely has. Thank you. Uh, and related to this, you indicate that while Alabama is under like a new one-party control, uh, one that you you write is even more polarized than it really ever has been, uh, there still exists regional divisions uh, in voting that mirrors the mid-century divisions, which you which you mm-hmm. speak about, which you write about, but. There's a there's a key difference. What's the difference between the regional differences now than what they were, say, in the 1950s? Well, so you basically still have um, the the black belt. So there's a uh, still a strong difference between the southern part of the state, right, especially the black belt, um, and that northern part, of the hill country. Um, they still vote for opposite, and they and the and the black belt still votes Democratic, and the hill country still votes Republican, right? But um, or you know they didn't vote Republican back then, but more Republican. Um, they but now you sort of have you have reversed the rebelliousness, if you want to call it that, right? So the the hill country, which always was kind of rebelling against uh, the dominant party, is now sort of um, really loyal to the dominant party, which has become the Republican Party, right? And the black belt um, is now sort of the rebellious region. Um, that is because of it is also the region with the highest percentage of black voters um, who are now part of the electorate, right? And so who is voting in in the black belt has changed um, and who is voting for Democrats in the black belt has changed, right? And so you have a lot of counties in that area that are majority black. Um, and so that used to not matter for elections, you know, back in the 50s um, because they were disenfranchised, right? But now it matters. Um, so you... You basically have this division now that is a lot more based or, or, you know, that is a lot more sort of centered around race um, rather than economic issues. Right. Because back then. So first of all, the rebelliousness has flipped, but also the issue that's dividing um, or, or, you know, making you vote for one party or the other has shifted from economics to race. Right. Because race has become you know, throughout the civil rights movement and everything that came along with it, it has become so much more salient um, and it has polarized the electorate, right? It has, um, you know, it has made Southern black voters very loyal Democrats um, and at the same time, right, white voters in the South have moved away from the Democratic Party. Now, obviously not all of them, but, you know, a, a large percentage of them, so... That's kind of how you still, interestingly, you know, that that was also sort of fascinating to me that it's the same, the regions are still divided the same way, right? It's just that they're divided for different reasons, um, but you still have the same sort of split that you would have seen, you know, in, in the 19th century. Yes, a, a, a true change, but continuity. Yes. Um, <laughs> so in your final chapter, you mentioned that Alabama is a demographically changing state. It has seen large increases in Asian and in Latino uh, po- uh, uh, populations. 
Uh, it has seen a small decrease in white uh, in its white population, as well as a, a, a kind of consistent incline in its black population. Uh, it has, over the past several decades, seen uh, migration towards the state from regions of the South, but also the North, not to the same, you know, uh, massive extent as Georgia or Tennessee, right. or Texas, but nonetheless, considerably more than Louisiana and much more than Mississippi, as mm-hmm. they say in Alabama, thank God for Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, how do these recent elections, what are these recent elections is what I'm trying to say, demonstrate the changing nature of Alabama electorate? What are ways in which uh, these increase in population, new demographics have made noticeable shifts in Alabama elections, or have they not? And then, and then finally, what are ways in which Republicans and, Demo- and, and Democrats can expand their seemingly solidified bases? You do, you do indicate that there are basically ways in which mm-hmm. Republicans can even win more in, in Alabama. Yeah. So um, I think that the the demographic uh, changes and and changes to the electorate have not quite been large enough to sort of change electoral outcomes yet. Right. So but they might. Right. And and that's kind of what we're so, you know, and Alabama, like, as you know, does not have sort of a metropolitan area in the same way that Georgia does. Right. There's a Birmingham and, and Montgomery are not like Atlanta. Right. And so. Um, <laughs> So you still you still don't have that, like you said, right, you don't have that level of change, um, but you do have movements in that direction. So, right, if we if we look down the road, if uh, demographic changes along those, if there's more in migration, if there's, you know, an expansion of, of um, Latino voters, that might change things, right? Things have changed in other states. Uh, Georgia has become competitive. Texas, we can't decide if Texas has become competitive or not, but it's <laughs> it's on a trajectory where it where it should be competitive at least down the road, right? Alabama, I think, is not there yet, um, but I don't think that it will never get there, right? It could become a more competitive state just because. Um, you know, of these kinds of changes that we're seeing across the region that we're seeing in other states. Um, and again, there could be other sort of upheavals that change things, right? We really didn't see this last change coming um, very far ahead of time, right? We, we could have, but we really didn't. Um, yeah. And so what can, you know, both parties, especially Republicans. So what I noticed is that, um, you know, if you think of, and, and there's a political science theory that says you can be sort of a position taker or an appropriator, right? So you can be uh, Richard Shelby, right, who is retiring, but his whole thing in the Senate was bringing a lot of as much money as possible to the state of Alabama. He wasn't, he was a conservative, but he wasn't really someone who would go on, you know, Tucker Carlson's show and make some, you know, grand pronouncements so the entire country would talk about him, right? That wasn't his style. Um, you know, he used to be a Democrat, so he was kind of, you know, this is how you win in Alabama. And what I want to do is sort of bring money to the state, right? I'm I'm on the, the relevant committees and that's my goal. That seems to be more appealing to voters in, you know, the bluer parts of the state than your alternative, which are these sort of more firebrand, you know, um, senators that, um, that Alabama, so like Jeff Sessions, right? So Jeff Sessions um, did really well in the state, but he did much 
less, or he did even worse, let's say, um, than Shelby in in the Black Belt, right? He, he so there is a, a group of voters in that region that doesn't necessarily vote for Republicans, but that might be convinced to vote for kind of like the uh, the the North Alabama, um, you know, voters in the fifties. Maybe I don't vote for Democrats, but I could be convinced to vote for a certain kind of Democrat, right? If it's a progressive Democrat, if it's this sort of more populist Democrat, um, that's more appealing to me, right? And so now you could say there's a voter here that says, well, you know, if you're not trying to be some sort of firebrand, but you're trying to, you know, bring projects and bring money home to the state, that might be appealing to me, right? So there, there are these different approaches that you can take. Um, now that, you know, to, to kind of take it to the modern day, that's not how you win a Republican primary at the moment. So there's a little bit of a, <laughs> of a disconnect here, but that's something that I think would help you, you know, expand into those areas, not win them, right? But do better and, and sort of improve your margins um, in in those areas. So... Um, yeah, I don't think, I mean, you know, people, I think, kind of saw Doug Jones winning in 2017 and thought, well, maybe that means Alabama is competitive. Uh, you know, that's clearly not what it means, right? It, that was sort of a a, a perfect storm um, for, or, you know, good or bad, depending on what side you're on. No, <laughs> elaborate on me, Regina, that election, because I was going to have that as a penultimate question, because I think there are some listeners who will think, wait a minute, wait a minute, didn't a Democrat just win this big election in 17? Why isn't it competitive? Tell us just, just briefly the conditions of that election that make it anomalous and not a trend. Yeah, so... Uh, Alabama Republicans nominated Roy Moore, who had a very sort of colorful history already before he became the Senate nominee. So he was basically removed from the uh, the state Supreme Court twice um, for ethics violations. So, you know, that must be some sort of record. Um, but he so he had all of that and he was still nominated, um, you know, um, for the Senate seat that was held by Jeff Sessions before, right? So there you can sign. And Jeff Sessions, the last time he ran, um, he ran unopposed. So, you know, that that's, this is kind of how much Democrats had sort of given up on this, on this seat, right? Um, but now you have Roy Moore and, you know, so that's part of it. He, he also had, um, I think a, a month before the election, um, he had this um, sort of scandal um, so it turned out he was banned from malls um, and he had, there were, you know, underage accusations from young to underage women um, of inappropriate behavior towards them. So there was a lot sort of going on with Roy Moore. Um, so so that was your, your especially sort of scandal plagued um, nominee. And you, on the other hand, you had Doug Jones, right? Who was a lot of times if you're, if you're a, a, not dominant party, um, one of your problems is that you have a hard time attracting good candidates because they know they're not going to win, right? So it's kind of, why would you do this? Like, why would I run for Senate in a state where I'm never going to win? So the people who do run, you know, for for these elections of, of the, the sort of hopeless um, candidates happen to oftentimes be kind of 
questionable characters, but not in this case, right? In this case, you have Doug Jones, who was a really strong candidate. He had sort of a long history in the state. He had a really long and strong connection to the African-American community, right? When he was, um, you know, attorney, um, attorney general, he was sort of working for, um, or not attorney, but he was kind of um, prosecuting the, the KKK members who had, um, committed that bombing in the 60s, Birmingham, right? Yeah, 1963 Birmingham bombing. Exactly. I, I would recommend listeners to watch um, Spike Lee's documentary, Three Little Girls, which goes over that incident. Doug Jones and George Wallace are featured very frequently. It's a brilliant documentary. But, yes, but, uh, and, and the Civil Rights Institute in, in Birmingham, if you go there, there are pictures of Doug Jones, right? So there is yeah. sort of this whole history that he has um, that goes back to that that made him a really good candidate. It made him a strong sort of candidate that also was able to really motivate a black turnout, right? That's the other thing, right? You need to. And so th- this was kind of a perfect a perfect storm of, you know, of candidates that you had. And you still had a really, really close election, right? You still had sort of, um, you know, Doug Jones barely winning, right? Even with all these, these conditions, um, even with, you know, Republicans being they might not vote for Democrats, but they might stay home, right? And, and some of them, I think there's some data showing that that's what some of them did, right? And some of them were like, I'm just going to sit this one out. And you still, it was still really close. So, you know, that kind of indicates that that was just a really unusual situation rather than the, you know, the beginnings of a trend, right? Unlike, you know, the, the last elections in Georgia, you know, that doesn't mean Democrats are always going to win in Georgia, but it does mean that it's become a competitive state, right? And and the 2017 election, I don't think, means the same thing for Alabama, which, you know, in part mean, in part is because we don't have an Atlanta, right? We don't have that. Yeah, that, that 2017 to 2020, as, as someone who lived in the South, gave me a lot of false hope. We uh, the, the Democrats won in Alabama, and then they won gubernatorial elections in Kentucky and Louisiana, and then there was the Georgia incident. And so, I and then that and then the moment I started to step back, I thought, wait a minute. Again, as we say, these are kind of anomalous situations. Trump was also a very unpopular president, and and he wasn't drawing yes. the same number of people as as prior presidents, but. Nonetheless, uh, Regina, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed speaking about the content of this, again, very well-researched, uh, data-heavy book that elaborates so much on the change in Alabama's politics as well as its continuities. Before we sign off, can you tell me a little bit about your future research projects you have planned? I think you already indicated you want to speak about 100 plus years of gubernatorial elections. <laughs> yes. So that, that project is still going. And, and originally, my plan was to, to turn that into a book project. I don't know if it will be that or multiple smaller projects, right? Mm. That depends on you know, the, the speed of the data collection and how much the data there is. Because if, you know, if I can turn this one state into a book, I don't know if I can put 49 states into another book or if that should be more than one. So that's one project um, that I'm working on. And then currently um, I do have a couple, I, I have a project with a, um, a co-author on endorsements in the 2020 Democratic um, primary um, that kind of are trying to figure out why people endorse, right? So a lot of time when we talk about endorsements, 
um, we talk about the people that are trying to get the endorsements. Um, but this is sort of looking at endorsers, right? What drives you to endorse one in a primary, right? It's, it makes a lot more sense in a general election, but why would you endorse in a primary? Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to look at. Um, and I have another article length project that is going to look at um, the midterm elections. So including this midterm election, it, we're trying to look at swing, which districts swing and if there's a relationship to um, the previous presidential vote share. So, you know, we kind of suspect there should be, but um, <laughs> we're trying to actually get the data on that. Um and I think the last project that I have um, also with a co-author is, is a book length project um, looking at the um, basically American political history through policy. So we're looking at important pieces of legislation. This is going back to the beginnings of the country um, and the way that they shaped the political discourse and the role that parties played in that. So sort of that interaction between um policy and the party system so yeah that's that's where i'm going hopefully (laughs) all of those sound uh fascinating especially the endorsement book uh with the primary i am still it still boggles my mind that tulsi gabbard endorsed joe biden in an election so i'm hoping that at least something will be will be uh touching upon that one but nonetheless (laughs) um regina thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today Yeah, thank you for having me it was really nice it's been a great conversation thank you Uh, You have been listening to New Books in American South, a channel of the New Books Network, discussing Regina L. Wagner's book, Electoral Patterns in Alabama, Local Change and Continuity Amid National Trends, published by Palgrave Macmillan, 2022. Thank you so much for listening.